God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. What we're going to look at today is what God requires for proper worship. And take your Bibles and go to the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, whom the apostle is beseeching are those special souls called by Christ, sanctified by his spirit, and given promise of eternal inheritance. They are unique above all men of the earth simply because God has chosen them, like with Israel, to be his own possession. As such, because they are part of God's heavenly call, then complete devotion to God should be their sole reason for living. And like Israel before them, they have been brought forth solely by the will of the Lord and have been designated to be a holy people unto the Lord himself. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, we read, In regards to Israel... For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord. Thy God, that is, set apart to the service of God or chosen to execute the important purposes of his providence, end quote. Israel was special and holy because of God's selection of them. Their uniqueness lay in the fact that God had chosen them above all other peoples in the earth to be holy unto himself. Israel, therefore, was chosen by the Lord to hold the high and lofty position of holding the title of becoming the Lord's servants. This is from Abide in Christ. The highest title of tribute you could give a person in the Old Testament was to call him the servant of Yahweh. The Hebrew word for servant, Eber, denotes God-given authority as the accredited messengers of the Lord. The servant of the Lord was one who was chosen by Yahweh. The origin implies the position of a slave. Servants of the Lord in the Old Testament. Abraham is the servant of the Lord. Uh, Psalm 105:42. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. Moses is called the servant of the Lord. And Moses my servant more often than anyone else in the Old Testament. Exodus 14:31. And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Moses, the servant of Yahweh, is almost the official a title of Moses. The author of Hebrews describes Moses as a servant in God's house when he writes, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. Joshua, Moses' servant, who led Israel into the promised land, 
was also called the servant of the Lord at the end of his life. The Lord speaks of his prophets saying, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets. Jeremiah 7.25 Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt, unto this day I have even sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Isaiah is called the servant of the Lord. In Isaiah 23, And the Lord said, Like as my servant Isaiah hath walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia. Even Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is called my servant. The old Babylonian king thought he was the king of the hill, but in reality, he was only an instrument in the hands of God. The redeemed are his servants, as we would expect, according to Psalm 34, 22. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned, end quote. By the mercies of God, once then mercy is shown, service should be begun. Once also God has forgiven the sinner, then the only proper response is to live unto God as a servant of God. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. The use of the word sacrifice reveals the level of commitment God desires from the chosen. Barnes on Romans 12.1, a sacrifice dedicated to God entirely and irrevocably. For the ancient sacrifices, the animals were wholly given and were not taken back again. Made dead to the world in sin, being slain by the commandment, end quote. A sacrifice by definition, especially with all living things, has an element of death. This is why a man must die to himself to properly live for God. Sacrifices also had no other purpose once they were consecrated and given to the Lord than for his use. Hence we see that a man must first die unto self before he can ever truly begin living a life unto God. He must die to his own interests before he is ready to take up the interests of the Lord. And in Luke 9, 23, And Jesus said unto them, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So also Matthew 10, 38. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. What the cross represents is a man's willingness to endure whatever is necessary in order to fulfill God's will for his life. As Christ not only carried his physical cross, but ultimately died upon it for the sole reason of fulfilling God's will for his own holy life. This same principle must be carried out today by all who claim to follow the Lord Jesus. They must take up their cross and spiritual responsibilities as the Lord did. The servant is not above his master. Therefore, we should never think that Jesus carried his cross so that we might abandon ours. To carry anything means that more weight is added to our lives and not less. 
so that where merely professing Christians will desire lighter loads, true Christians know that to please the Lord, their weight of spiritual responsibility must always, as their faith grows, increase. In regards to the Christian, it is he who must through faith present himself as a living sacrifice to God. This is an individual choice and must be a free will offering. What also the Lord delights in are those who give their life to God, not grudgingly or of necessity, but rather with cheerful hearts. In 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Hence, if any think that they can present any offering to God, and God will be blessed with it, if it lacks either willingness or cheerfulness, then they know little to nothing of the standards for acceptable sacrifice. Like with so many other things, if the heart is not right, then the action will be rejected. Since to worship God properly, the immaterial, spirit-soul part of man must initiate and prompt the worship. Again, if the heart is not desiring to offer itself to God for God's use, then we should not think that the Lord finds anything pleasing in any action performed by the body. John 4.24 God is spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Barnes on this. God is a spirit. This is one of the first truths of religion and one of the sublimest ever presented to the mind of man. Almost all nations have some idea of God as gross or material. But the Bible declares that He is a pure spirit. As He is such a spirit, He dwells not in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life, breath, and all things. A pure, a holy, a spiritual worship, therefore, is such as he seeks, the offering of the soul rather than the formal offering of the body, the homage of the heart rather than that of the lips, end quote. What sets a man up for engaging in proper worship of the Lord is that he in both heart, mind, and ultimately body presents himself as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Since because to properly worship God requires that a man or woman has first presented themselves as a living sacrifice to God, being as there can be no proper spiritual worship of the Lord without men first dedicating their entire lives to Him. Anything less than this is unworthy of the mercy shown to the sinner. Therefore, as Christians, to properly worship God, we must be willing to give our entire life, the totality of our being, to do God's will. Nothing held back, nor anything denied. Barnes on Romans 12.1 A living sacrifice. A sacrifice is an offering made to God as an atonement for sin, or any offering made to Him as a service, as an expression of thanksgiving or homage. 
It implies that he who offers it, presents it entirely, releases all claim or right to it, and leaves it to be disposed of for the honor of God. In the case of an animal, it was slain, and the blood offered. In the case of any other offering as the first fruits, it was set apart to the service of God, and he who offered it released all claim on it and submitted it to God to be disposed of it at his will. This is the offering which the apostle entreats the Romans to make, to devote themselves to God as if they had no longer any claim on themselves, to be disposed of by him, to suffer and bear all that he might appoint, and to promote his honor in any way which he might command. This is the nature of true religion, end quote. There are three important aspects of what kind of sacrifice God expects from those who he has shown mercy, the sacrifice needed to be offered that will allow God to accept our worship as worthy of his holy name. First, a man must completely give his body, which is represented as his life, for God's use. This is the definition of a sacrifice, and it cannot be compromised. Secondly, it is to be a living sacrifice. This means there must be vital energy exercised on God's behalf. Since there is no such thing in Christianity as an immobile or non-active sacrifice, teaching us that when people are not living for the Lord by presenting their earthly bodies and energy to Him, then it will be impossible for their worship to be found acceptable unto God. Thirdly, the next element of every acceptable sacrifice is that it is needful for it to be found holy. Practically speaking, the Christian's offering of his life must be pure. Hence, not have mixed motives or contain a double-mindedness as to how he desires to live his or her life. Since no offering can be considered pure if there is not absolute spiritual devotion to the Lord. Holy, acceptable unto God. Ellicott on this. Holy, acceptable unto God. The qualification sought for in the Jewish sacrifices was that they were to be unblemished, without spot. In like manner, the Christian sacrifice must be holy and pure in God's sight. Otherwise, it cannot be acceptable to him, end quote. Barnes on this verse. Holy. This means properly without blemish or defect. No other sacrifice could be made to God. The Jews were expressly forbid to offer what was lame or blind or in any way deformed. If offered... Without any of these defects, it was regarded as holy, that is, appropriately set apart or consecrated to God. In like manner, we are to consecrate to God our best faculties, the vigor of our minds and talents and time, not the feebleness of sickness merely, not old age alone, not time, which we cannot otherwise employ, but the first vigor and energies of the mind and body, our youth, our health and strength, 
our sacrifice to God is to be not divided, separate, but it is to be entire and complete. Many are expecting to be Christians in sickness, many in old age, thus proposing to offer him the blind and the lame. The sacrifice is to be free from sin. It is not to be a divided and broken and a polluted service, end quote. For any sacrifice to be accepted by God, holiness needed to be the main characteristic of it. God's word reiterates this throughout scripture, that to have either fellowship with the Lord or serve him properly, then holiness is essential. 1 Peter 1.16, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. So also he who is unholy will, God's word declares, be withheld from ever truly seeing the Lord. Hebrews 12.14, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Holiness is that attribute which is essential to be pursued if ever we are to see the Lord and ultimately have the worship we present to him to be found acceptable. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on Hebrews 12, 14, no man shall see the Lord, no man as a son in heavenly glory. In the East, none but the greatest favorites are admitted to the honor of seeing the king. The Lord being pure and holy, none but the pure and holy shall see him. Without holiness in them, they could not enjoy him who is holiness itself. The Greek verb does not denote the mere action of seeing, but the seer state of mind to which the object is presented. So in Matthew 5, 8, they shall truly comprehend God, Titman. None but the holy could appreciate the holy God. None else, therefore, shall abide in his presence, end quote. It is also for this purpose of holiness that God has sent from heaven to his new sons the gift of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 5, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. No man also can walk in any true holiness without God's own holy nature enabling him to do so. Consequently, God's chosen will possess in their hearts a holy nature given to them by God so that they may then walk holy before God. For if an offering is not holy, do not be misled to think that God will ever count it worthy. Ezekiel 36, 25, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, which is your reasonable service. The King James Version 
does not properly convey the great depth of the last portion of this verse. Other translations will help in identifying why offering ourselves to God as living sacrifices is so essential. It is so that our worship of God may be proper and worthy of God. The NIV on this verse, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The NLV, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. The NAS, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The CSB, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. How astounding is this truth, that the basis of all true worship resides in a man or woman presenting themselves to God as a living sacrifice. And this can only happen when they completely and without hesitation give their whole and entire life to God. This alone encapsulates what is the foundation of all true Christian worship. Since there is no other worship that God finds acceptable that does not include first presenting our lives to God to be used as God wills. So that if we are to worship God properly, then our bodies, as representing our entire lives, must be presented to God for His spiritual use. Not for a moment, not for a week, but for the rest of our earthly life, until also such time as we are miraculously changed in the image of God's Son. Verse 2 now of Romans 12. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Benson on this. And be not conformed, neither in judgment, spirit, nor behavior, to this vain and sinful world, which neglecting the will of God entirely follows its own. But be ye transformed, regenerated, and created anew by the renewing of your minds, of your understandings, wills, and affections through the influence of the Spirit of God. End quote. Here we have a practical way of maintaining holiness once the Holy Spirit has been given to us. This is done by not being conformed to the world. For no man can be a living sacrifice to God and walk as those in the world do. Hence, whatever custom, pattern, or behavior that this world pushes should be both tried and tested to determine if it, if it agrees, to determine if it agrees with God's will or not. It goes without saying that men should not love the world, 
simply because if a man or woman loves the world, then they will never yield their lives willingly to the service of God, nor be open to being transformed in their hearts and minds to do only those things pleasing to the Lord. 1 John 2.15 Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The truth also is there are but two primary forces that influence men on how they live their lives. One is the spirit of this world. The other, the spirit which is of God. 1 Corinthians documents these two distinctly different forces in the world. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, we read, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. The spirit of this world is the very same spirit that works in and now leads the children of disobedience. So that when men love the world and are led by the spirit of the world, they will disregard obedience to God and instead engage in living in disobedience to God's will for their lives. Ephesians 2.2 wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Before men and women are saved, they are led and influenced by the spirit of the world, which has as its source the prince of the power of the air, that is the devil. Ultimately then, all who follow this world's ways are following this world's God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. If a man then is not directly led by the Spirit of God's Son, he will be both led and directed by the spirit of this world. Friendship with the world and being conformed to it also is, as far as God is concerned, what constitutes a man as becoming God's enemy. For none shall follow this world and its lusts and ever be counted as a friend of God. James 4.4 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Barnes on this verse, know ye not that the friendship of the world, the term world here is to be understood not of the physical world as God made it, for we could not well speak of friendship of that, but of the community or people called the world. In contradistinction from the people of God, the friendship of the world is the love of that world, of the maxims which govern it, the principles which reign there, the ends that are sought, the amusements and gratifications which characterize it as distinguished from the church of God. It consists in setting our hearts on those things in conforming to them, in making them the object of our pursuit with the same spirit 
with which they are sought to those who make no pretensions to religion, is enmity with God, is in fact hostility against God, since the world is arrayed against him. It neither obeys his laws, submits to his claims, nor seeks to honor him. To love that world is therefore to be arrayed against God. And the spirit which would lead us to this is, in fact, a spirit of hostility to God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world, whoever he may be, whether in the church or out of it, the fact of being a member of the church makes no difference in this respect. For it is as easy to be a friend of the world in the church as out of it. The phrase, whosoever will, implies purpose, intention, design. It supposes that the heart is set on it, or that there is a deliberate purpose to seek the friendship of the world. It refers to that strong desire which often exists, even among professing Christians, to secure the friendship of the world, to copy its fashions and vanities, to enjoy its pleasures, and to share in its pastimes and its friendships. Wherever there is a manifested purpose to find our chosen friends and associates, there rather than among Christians, wherever there is a greater desire to enjoy the smiles and approbation of the world than there is to enjoy the approbation of God and the blessings of a good conscience, and wherever there is more conscious pain because we have failed to win the applause of the world, or have offended its votaries, and have sunk ourselves in its estimation, than there is because we have neglected our duty to the Savior and have lost the enjoyment of religion. There is the clearest proof that the heart wills or desires to be a friend of the world. Is the enemy of God. This is the most solemn declaration and one of fearful import in its bearing on many who are members of the church. It settles the point that anyone, no matter what his professions, who is characteristically a friend of the world, cannot be a true Christian, end quote. If any then are led by the spirit of this world, it shall be proven that they are not the true children of God. He then who will follow this world's affections shows himself as never giving either himself or his soul to Christ. Since there exists no true piety that seeks what this world offers, while at the same time does God's will. By this then, friendship with the world and copying its behaviors are the children of disobedience revealed. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, for the Christian, there must be an inward change and transformation, whereby what once previously ruled him or her is abandoned, and a new set of principles and godly directives are sought. For not until men search both God's Word and God's Spirit as to how they are supposed to live unto God will they reveal themselves as willing to be transformed from their previous way of living. He then, who will not search out God's new pattern for life, 
remains content in his old, natural, and carnal lifestyle. And though a form of godliness might remain, no power will be given unto God, nor will the body ever be given to God for God's use. 2 Timothy 3, 5, Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. Ellicott on this verse, Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, keeping up a show of observing the outward forms of religion, but renouncing its power and its influence over the heart and the life, showing openly that they neither acknowledge its guidance or wish to do so. These, by claiming the title of Christians, wearing before men the uniform of Christ, but by their lives dishonoring his name, did the gravest injury to the holy Christian cause, end quote. Ultimately, if our bodies and lives are not presented to God, then they will be kept for ourselves, which in the end will finally reveal if the life lived under God's name will actually be found acceptable unto him. Amen.